0: So, let's jump into what I think the Lord has for us today. You know, last week was Father's Day, and we we talked through the parable of the prodigal son, which really probably ought to be called the parable of the unfailing love of the father, because it's really about the father and not, not necessarily the son. Today, we're jumping back into the book of Acts. We're in the second series in Acts, and we're calling this series Birth. And again, Acts, if you remember, Acts is Luke's second book, his first book being the gospel according to Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that's his first book, and then Acts is really his second. Today we're in the third message in Acts chapter 2, and if you remember back when we started Acts 2, it starts off with the Holy Spirit falling on Jesus' disciples, and you know our worship team just sang a song, Rest on Us. What a beautiful song that is, and it's this image of the Holy Spirit resting on those who are saved. And so we started off with, with at Pentecost, which is seven weeks or so after that first Easter weekend, with the Holy Spirit falling on Jesus guys and women, and what all of that kind of means. We talked through that, and then in starting in verse four of Acts chapter two, we talked about. Uh, those folks began to speak in languages that weren't their own languages. And the people were hearing what they were saying in their own languages. And so uh, the reason that that happened is there were thousands of people there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And God in his will was birthing his church. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today as well. And so he, he did a thing. At Pentecost, he did a thing, and you had thousands of people that were from wherever, from Libya, from Egypt, from who knows wherever, all over that area, and, and God's doing his thing so they can hear his message and then go home and spread the gospel. For Luke, in Luke's history of the church, y'all, that's what Acts, the book of Acts is. It's it's Luke's history of the church. Luke is very much, very much concerned about connecting the activity of the Holy Spirit with the proclamation of the gospel. He connects the Holy Spirit doing his thing with witnessing, with, 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 uh, with proclaiming the gospel message. Over and over and over and over in the book of Acts, the folks who get filled with the Spirit immediately start talking with their friends and with their family and with their coworkers and with their neighbors and whatever uh, about the Lord. I did. I did. I remember it's January of 2001. Like I wanted to get on a mountaintop and just start screaming as loud as I could about Jesus. It's like when Paul is in Rome and he's Paul's chained to one of the guards who would be like for us today would be like a special forces officer in the military. This super big shot guards. Those were the guys that um, those are the guys that were guarding Paul. It was an honor. And so you know that they're chained literally to Paul, that Paul probably would not shut up talking about Jesus to this guy. They're chained to him for 12 hour shifts. And Paul, like Paul, they're probably get home from work and they're, they're like, oh my gosh, all I heard was about Jesus for 12 hours. Like that's the way that I felt personally when I got saved. I just want, I I mean, I probably was obnoxious, but I, I, I just wanted to proclaim his name over and over. That That's what's happening here in Luke's history. So this was the case when the Spirit of God was poured out at Pentecost. Tons of people are gathered in Jerusalem. And they were amazed to hear the, 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 the Spirit-filled Jews, because they were all Jews, speaking fluently about the Lord in languages that those people who were talking, they never learned those languages. But they were speaking fluently in those languages. And so there was a little bit of confusion. You could almost imagine. And then Kepha, that's Peter. Kepha stands up and he delivers this convicting message. Challenging the people there. We're going to shoot to verse 38 and then we're going to back up. But he's challenging the people to what's on the screen. He challenges them to turn away from sin, to return to God part of our mission, helping people find their way back to God and grow. So he challenges them to turn away from their sin, because again, it's a 180 degree turn. 90 degrees of that is turning away from your sin and then turning back to the Lord. And he says, and each of you be immersed or baptized on the authority of Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah into the forgiveness of your sins. And so God uses Peter's sermon, and Peter's sermon is riddled throughout it with Old Testament references to ultimately in that moment to draw about 3,000-ish men and women to himself. This sermon is the very first sermon that is preached in the church age, and the church age is that, that time really ultimately between that first Easter uh, and the and, and second coming. That's this church age. And so we're going to spend two weeks talking through Peter's sermon walking through this message, which really launched the church. This message in Acts chapter 2 launches the church. It is the most important sermon ever preached in the history of mankind other than Christ's words himself. It's Acts chapter 2. I shudder when I when I think about it. I prayed really honestly uh, all week long because I know as we walk through this message in Acts 2 and and, and I'm going to be talking about it and we're going to be hearing and, and thinking through and Discussing this most important message ever preached, other than Jesus' words, I'm like, Lord, don't let me mess this up. This is a critical thing. And I believe this, y'all hear this now. If more men would preach what's in Acts chapter 2, we would see revival sweep across the country. Not, not, this message is one million gajillion percent gospel. It is Jesus, 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 Jesus. It is the core gospel. It is the untainted, unadulterated gospel message in Acts chapter 2. So let me say it again. If more men would preach this from stages all over the country, we would see the winds, the fire of revival sweep across our nation. We would. It is the message that every single Christian should all, all of us, should all unify around not sprinkling or dunking and, and, and not losing your salvation or not losing your salvation. Not election or, I don't know what the opposite of ele- not election. <laughs> I don't know. Not whether speaking in tongues is normative in the church today or not. It's the gospel, period. Not adding to it and not taking away from it. It's the gospel if men would preach that, y'all. I'm, it's just the truth. Now, I said a minute ago, and I want you to remember, we're breaking this sermon up because it's too much. We're breaking it up into two messages, today and then two weeks from now, because next week's Independence Day, we're going to talk about freedom. But we're breaking up this message, Peter's sermon, today and then two weeks from now. But I want to read to you the whole message, um, starting in verse 14, and then we're going to jump back and kind of look at what we're going to talk about today. So Acts 2, 14. Then Kepha, who is Peter, stood up with the eleven and raised his voice to address them. It's significant that he raised his voice. We'll get to that. He said, you Judeans, and all of you staying here in Yerushalayim or Jerusalem, let me tell you what this means. Listen carefully to me. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this, what's going on, is what was spoken about through the prophet Yoel, Joel. It's in Joel chapter 2. Verse 17, Adonai, the Lord says, in the last days, I will pour out from my spirit upon everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, both men and women, will I pour out from my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and thick smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon blood before the great and fearful day of Adonai the Lord comes. And then, whoever calls on the name of Adonai will be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua from Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth, was a man demonstrated to you to have been from God by by the powerful works, miracles, and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, the law, you nailed him up on a stake and killed him. So through the agency of persons who were not bound by the law, all he's saying is through the Romans. Through the Romans, you nailed him up on a cross. But God has raised him up and freed him from the suffering of death. It was impossible that death could keep its hold on him. For David says about him, and this is from Psalm 16, I saw Adonai the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. For this reason, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And now my body too will live on in the certain hope that you will not abandon me to Sheol, or Hades, or let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with joy by your presence. Brothers, I know I can say to you frankly that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is with us to, to this day. And you know when he's preaching that, he's standing there, and I almost guarantee you, he says, Brothers, I know that we can say that David's died and buried, and he's probably pointing over there to where David's buried, because he's making a point that David's in the ground rotten. Verse 30, Therefore, since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. He was speaking in advance about the resurrection of the Messiah, that it was he who was not abandoned in shell and whose flesh did not see decay. God raised up this Yahshua, Jesus, and we are all witnesses of it. Moreover, he's been exalted to the right hand of God, has received from the Father what he promised, namely the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and has poured out this gift, which you are both seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into heaven, but he says, and this is from Psalm 110, he says, Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know beyond doubt that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yahshua, whom you executed on a stake. Y'all, there's the whole message. That's Peter's message, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Now I want us to dive in and talk about, talk about it. And talk about how we respond to that. I want you to imagine that you are there at Pentecost. Back your mind up 2,000 years. And you're there. And it seems a little crazy. It seems a little chaotic. Because you got three or four or 5,000 people there. And you're hearing all this stuff. And you're seeing all this stuff. And you're hearing these languages that... that you know that this guy's talking in, but he doesn't speak that It's just crazy. And it's a little chaotic. And you're wondering what's going on. Something's going on, but like what is it that's going on? Are these people drunk? That's what they thought. They asked him that in verse 12 or 13. Nah, they're drunk. And you're like, is that the case or are we witnessing everything change? Everything about our whole life and the way we were raised and the way our grand... Grandparents were raised. Is is everything changing? And you're just wondering what's going on. Like what kind of days are we living in? That's probably what they're thinking. What kind of days are we living in? I want to give you point number one in answer to that last question. What kind of days are we living in? And it will come to answer all of these questions. Number one is this. These are the days of the fulfillment of scripture. If you have a worship guide, you got some fill in the blanks. These are the days of the fulfillment of scripture. Verse 14, then Kepha Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice to address them. You Judeans, you Jews, and all of you staying here in Yerushalayim, let me tell you what this means. Listen carefully to me. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, this is what is spoken about through the prophet Joel. So here, Peter and all his disciples now, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It just happened. It just happened, Rock their world. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, full of God's presence, full of God's joy. So all they could do, the only logical response is like to be excited, to speak about the mighty moves of God. All they could do was demonstrate um, absolute confidence, absolute certainty, absolute assurance and conviction of his presence and of eternal salvation and bear testimony and bear witness to anybody and everybody that would listen. And God in his sovereignty brought all those people. It's not happenstance that this happened at Pentecost. God brought all those people there. Why did he bring them all there? To hear what Peter is saying, to hear and see the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now, their behavior did kind of require some explanation because I'm sure it was a a little off. And Peter provides this explanation. And so he stands up, and the Bible tells us that he speaks at the top of his voice. And that this guy that's talking at Pentecost, this guy that is, is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, this is a different dude than had just denied Jesus seven, six or seven weeks earlier. This is a different guy. He's Now he's speaking, speaking with boldness. He denied even knowing who Christ was, right? So this is a different guy. Now he speaks with boldness. Now he speaks with authority. Now he speaks with with conviction and with assurance and and he speaks forcefully. And so as we walk through this message this week and two weeks from now, you're going to see the absolute difference that the Holy Spirit makes when he's living inside of Peter. When you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, it changes your life. It changes everything. It changes the way you view things. It changes the word it, it, the fact that he's living inside of you, it changes everything. It changes the way you speak to people. It changes your kindness. He makes massive changes in your life. And so Peter, as he's it's really sanctification, in that six or seven weeks, he rocks Peter's world. And now the Holy Spirit is speaking through him so that the Lord can get done what he's getting done. And so Peter says... You want to know what this speaking in foreign languages means? You think we've gone bonkers. You you think that we're drunk. He says, no, let me tell you what it means. And he says, listen to me. Like I can almost hear him. He's telling them, y'all listen to what what I'm saying. Ain't nobody been drinking no liquor drinks. That ain't what's going on. We have, however, been immersed in the Holy Spirit. We've been dunked and baptized and the Holy Spirit has come to rest on us and, and, and in us. That's what it means. It means that what Scripture predicted, this is Peter saying this, what Scripture predicted so long ago is now coming to fruition. What's happening is exactly what Scripture said is going to happen. That's what Peter is telling them. It was the mighty hand of God doing just what He'd promised. You know, it was the salvation offering gospel. Promised by the Lord, you can almost see Him just say, "Boom," and He just laid it on out there. That's what all—that's what—that's what all of it means. And what they're wondering about is all this sort of craziness, and it doesn't mean anything that they thought it meant. It meant that Scripture is being fulfilled. So this is—these are the days. Number one, the days of the fulfillment of Scripture, and then number two is this: these are the last days. They're the last days. Verse seventeen. I don't know, the Lord says, what does he say? In the last days, I will pour out from my spirit upon everyone, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And young men will see visions and, and, your, and your old men will dream dreams. Even all my slaves, he says, both men and women, will I pour out from my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and thick smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon blood before the great and fearful day of Adonai comes. And then whoever calls on the name of Adonai, the Lord will be saved. And so it seems kind of crazy. But we're seeing the birth of the church and we're seeing the birth of the church age and we're seeing the beginning of the last days. And so Peter is declaring today on this day the great prophecy of Joel is beginning to be fulfilled. He says today begins the last days of the earth's history. He's saying today begins the final age of God's plan for human history. Today, he says, begins the last days. This dispensation, this error, this time of God's grace, this time of God's church, the age of the gospel. That's what we're talking about. So when scripture says the last days and you read the last days, it means all of that. It means all of that. The last days began with Jesus hanging on a cross and he says it is finished. Well, what's finished? What he came to accomplish is what's finished. He came with a task, laser focused on the cross. All of his life and his ministry for three and a half years, all of it ends up pointing to the cross. And so when he's hanging there, And he says it is finished, his his task is accomplished. So this age began then, and it'll end when he returns. And you know, we are 2,000 years now, about, we're 2,000 years into the last days. And so this last days include, verse 17 says God, pouring out his spirit on all believers... We're going to talk a little about this today. Jew and Gentile alike. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all believers. Pouring out his spirit to dwell inside of believers, to abide with, with believers, to walk alongside of believers, to abundantly fill and, and, and overflow us. You know, when God fills you up, he doesn't fill you up a little bit. He overflows the cup. Well, what happens when he overflows the cup with his spirit? It comes out. That's what I'm talking about when when in my own life that I wanted to get up on top of the Affleck Tower and start screaming about Jesus. That's the overfilling of the Holy Spirit. And and then he, in these days, he provides us with very special gifts of prophecy and of of visions and of dreams. Now, as an aside a little bit to this message, in in this idea of prophecy and visions and dreams, History has shown and scripture warns us that sometimes spiritual gifts, you may even say often, they can tragically be misused and abused. And me and you got to guard against accepting every vision, every prophecy, every dream as being from God. We got to guard against that. You know how we guard against it? You know how we're discerning? We measure it against the word of God. We measure it against this. We don't measure it against another man. We measure it against, uh, uh, against God's word, against scripture. When I stand up here and preach, measure what I say on Sunday mornings against this. Don't measure it against another man. Don't measure it against some YouTube video. Measure it against scripture. When Richard preaches on Sunday mornings, and he's helping out a church today, actually preaching at Calvary Chapel uh, for that pastor. Um, measure what he preaches against the word. If you're watching a message somebody else preaching on, on, on YouTube or something, measure their words against the word of God. Does that make sense? That's a huge issue. And so we're not gonna do this yet. We will do it as we get there in Acts. When we study visions and when we study dreams in the book of Acts, here's what we're gonna find. We're gonna find that every single time, every one of them, when that happens, it had to do with witnessing, with reaching people for Christ. Not a single one of the times that that is in Scripture had to do with personal edification or personally building up that person that is doing it and making them some spiritual superhero. No. It is all about leading people to Christ every single time. That's another way to kind of be discerning. And so we're talking about these last days. And the last days, again, they they include the fearful day of the Lord, of the judgment that is at the end of the last days, and that is the day that Christ returns to execute judgment on the planet. It's coming. I mean, it's coming. We're 2,000 years into it. It's coming at the end of this age, and it's going to be characterized with things and events that Joel writes about here, miracles in the sky and on the earth, terrible bloodshed, explosive fire and billowing smoke that's going to, going to, block out the sun and it's going to turn the moon. The moon's going to appear blood red. And in my evangelist sort of mindset, the last days, remember again, they started way back, way back that first Easter weekend. They include the days of great salvation. So throughout all of the last days from his first coming to his second coming, men and women can be will be were and are saved and how are they saved by crying out to the lord by calling on his name by calling on him this is almost like peter's punchline anybody and everybody that calls on the name of the lord will be saved it doesn't say that every other one of them that call on his name is going to be saved it doesn't say that 20% or 30% every single human that calls on his name. When that calling is honest and authentic and genuine, 100% the word says we'll be saved. So the issue in salvation, it's not um, it's, it's not like who a person is or it's not who their grandpappy was. It's not what he or she has done. The issue is just simply, it's just trust. Trust, faith, belief, and humility. Anybody, everybody who looks to the Lord for for forgiveness is going to find forgiveness. Scripture says that person will be saved. What an incredible promise. Is there another promise that anybody can think of as we sit here that's better than that? Call on his name and he will save you. Period. That's the gospel, y'all. I'm going to say this, who in your life, friend, family, neighbor, coworker I don't know, who in your life that you know needs that saving movement, that saving touch from the Lord? Think of that person, and I'm not saying this metaphorically, I'm saying right now, think about that person and pray that, that the Lord would, would, that the Father would work in their lives to draw them to the Son. John six forty four says that, no one comes to me except that the Father would draw them. Ask him to draw them into salvation. Matter of fact, I want to pray right now about that. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you make us and it it is the greatest promise ever. And I know, Lord, that all of us, myself included, every one of us have friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, Lord, that don't know you. And so, Lord, today, right now in this, in this moment, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would say yes, and they would enter into this, this unbelievable saving relationship with you. And so, Lord, we lift all of them up in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Y'all, we call on him as we sense our need to be saved. As we sense and we feel this brokenness inside, this sinfulness inside, sometimes this wickedness inside. As we, as we feel that and as we sense that, we, he draws us to himself and we repent of that and we turn away from that and we, and we turn towards him. And we believe that, that that death on that cross paid this penalty that was my penalty to pay. It wasn't his penalty to pay. It was my penalty to pay. And so we believe that that happened and we believe that he walked out of that grave alive. And we call on him. It's what scripture says. We, we call on him. We, we cry out to him to do just that, to save us. So these are the days of the fulfillment of scripture, number one. And then these are the last days that Peter is talking about. And then thirdly is this. These are the days of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Can't you hear him hollering? Y'all listen to what I'm saying. That's what he he says. Yeshua from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, was a man demonstrated to you as as have been from God by the powerful works, miracles, and signs that God performed through him in your presence. You yourselves know this. So Peter is driving the thrust of his message home. With men of Israel, y'all listen to this. Listen to me He's saying this Jesus guy. You saw him. You know him. You saw him walk in these dusty roads in, in Israel for three and a half years. He was attested to you. He was demonstrated to you. He was certified to you to have been from God. And it was done in many ways and through many things like powerful signs and miracles and works that God did through him. And Peter said, you saw it all, y'all. You saw it. These things weren't done in secret. They weren't done in some closet. He said, you saw all of that stuff. Look at verse 23. This man was arrested in accordance with God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And don't tell me that you don't struggle with that because I do. And through the agency of persons not bound by the Torah, the law, you nailed him up on a stake and killed him. With just about no warning, y'all, Peter lays the hammer on them. Now, you remember this huge audience that he has in front of him. They're all Jews. He's a Jew. His little band of brothers and sisters, they're all Jewish. So with no warning whatsoever, he, he suddenly accuses this Jewish audience of an awful participation in the Messiah's death. This verse is this perfect picture of God's sovereignty and people's responsibility. God's sovereignty, God's being in control, and man's responsibility at the same time, both in the same sentence. So, God's prearranged plan, that's what the, that's what the scripture says, his pre- prearranged plan was his sovereign will to bring salvation to people through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. That was his will. So for sure, God's will is sovereign. It is sovereign. He is in control. But at the same time and all the time, he works through people and he works through events in history. So even putting Jesus to death fulfilled God's plan. His prearranged plan led to his son's death, but people are responsible. People are responsible. Yes, the Romans were involved. Of course, the Romans were involved, y'all. Yes, they hammered this crown of thorns that is really kind of prettied up if you watch any movie or except for The Passion. Um, They mash that crown down on his head. They beat him. Yes, the Romans beat him mercilessly for hours and hours, tearing the flesh off his back, tearing the flesh off of his chest, tearing the flesh off of his, yeah, they did that. Yes, they laid him on a cross and they nailed his wrist and his feet. Absolutely, they did. Absolutely, they stuck a spear in his side. Absolutely, they were responsible. And yes, absolutely, the Jews were responsible. Absolutely, whether or not any of these people in this audience that Peter's talking to literally participated in those events was not Peter's point. It's just not the point. Peter was saying at least they are, at, at a minimum, they are culpable because as Jews, they missed their Messiah that had been prophesied about for a thousand years, y'all. Go read Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the crucifixion, and you'll see this image Written 300 years before crucifixion was even a thing. Write it down, Psalm 22, go read it. It'll blow your mind. It's an image of the crucifixion of Christ before crucifixion was even a thing. And so they missed their own Messiah. And they had allowed their leaders to get him killed. So yes, yes. And so Peter is pointing his finger at them and saying, you nailed him to the cross. You murdered him. And it's possible that literally some of those people that he was talking to were actually part of this mob that in Luke 23 are crying out to Pilate. What are they crying out? Crucifying. So some of them, probably so. But most of them may not even have been in Jerusalem at the time. Nevertheless, Peter identifies them as accomplices in Jesus' execution when he says, you did it. You did it. And I'm sure he's pointing his finger at them. You did it. And y'all, here's the truth. There's a sense that me and you did too. It's my jacked upness, put him on the cross. It's your sin that he had to die for. It's my sin that he had to die for. Our sin sent him to Calvary. I don't care if it was 2,000 years ago. You think it was 2,000 years ago for the Lord? No, don't, 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 don't bound up the Lord in time. And so, I, and so, I would ask you this question: When is the last time, if you think about it this way, your messed upness put him on the cross? Mine did too. So, when is the last time that you thought to yourself and you thanked God for for this stunning, shocking? display of mercy and grace. Because we sure don't deserve it, y'all. I want to pray again, Lord, as we sit here right now and we think about your death on that cross so many years ago. Lord, forgive me for not thanking you every single day of my life. And thanking you that I did not get what I deserved. And I think everybody in this room that is called on your name would say the same thing. Lord, your, your, your mercy and your grace is so stunning and so shocking and so undeserved. All we can do is just fall to our knees and say, thank you. And so we do that. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Y'all look at verse 24. So you nailed him to a cross. Verse 24, but God has raised him up and freed him from the suffering of death it was impossible that death could keep its hold on him. So God knew, God knew in his predeterminate will, and y'all, I know I'm using churchy words today, but I can't get around it. In his predeterminate will and his foreknowledge, God knew that the best way to save men and women was through the resurrection of his son from the dead. And by, by raising him up, There is a freedom from the suffering of of death. Death is no longer to be feared. It's no longer to be feared. Physical death, we're freed from all that. Jesus conquered all of that. He abolished that death. He did. It is the craziest thing if you think about it. I don't fear it at all anymore. If I fell off this stage, hit my head and died, I'd wake up in the arms of Christ. What could be better? I'm not fixing to jump off stage, but what could be better? Y'all, that's the promise that he makes. That is the promise. Don't be scared of death. Don't. You're freed from that. When he said it is finished, that's one of the things he's talking about. Adam took care of it. That's what he's saying. He actually made it harmless, the physical death. Now, the second part of this verse why was it impossible for death to keep its grip on him, to keep a hold on him? And I have often just personally wondered about that part of the verse, like what does it mean? And that word translated at the beginning of verse uh, 24 that you'll see up there that circled suffering, that word suffering is often translated pangs, P-A-N-G-S, or pains like labor pains, pangs, birth pains. That's what the word really is for. And so the only birth pang that I ever felt with Susan's hand around my throat in the labor and delivery room. <laughs> Sorry about that. So you think about this though. Think about that word that's used there. And so if I were to paraphrase this verse a little bit, make it a little easier to understand, it would maybe go like this, like God has raised him up and has ended The birth pains of death had ended the labor pains of death and it was impossible that death could keep a hold on him, that death could keep a grip on him. And laying underneath this this verse is this thought of the the sphere of death, the philosophy of death, the, the, the world maybe of death as being personified as a pregnant woman who is incapable of stopping the emergence of the new life that is inside of her. That's this picture that he's painting. Here's the point. Death can no more hold Jesus Christ hostage than a pregnant woman can hold a child inside her body when it's time for that child to come out. Does that make sense? It was impossible for the author of life to be held captive hostage by the power of the grave. It was impossible. It just could not ever happen. And so his resurrection His bodily resurrection is Christianity's fundamental event. And it's the total basis of the gospel. The the, the resurrection is a foundational part of the preaching in Acts. It's all over Acts. It's over and over and over. Acts records somebody talking about Jesus rising from the dead when that Praetorian guard is chained to Paul in Rome. I promise you. All Paul is saying, he walked out of the grave alive. Jesus is alive. He went in dead. He came out alive. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. alive. Where is Zeus? Where is Apollos? I don't know. Jesus is alive. That's what Paul is hammering the Roman guards with. That's what all the preaching through Acts is. It's all about the resurrection. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. Super simple. He says, and if the Messiah has not been raised, then your trust is useless, your belief is useless, your faith is useless, and you're still in your sins. Y'all, it is all about the resurrection. It is all about, that's what the church preached about they didn't preach about all this other stuff that's on the periphery they didn't talk about eternal salvation they didn't talk about uh, about whether you can lose it or not and should you get immersed, dunked or should you be sprinkled or oh what about election, are you elect I hope I'm elect, they didn't talk about all that stuff they didn't, they said the dead guy's not dead anymore think about that, if you'd have been there, y'all and you see this dead guy, wrapped up dead as a doornail go into this cave and this gajillion pound stone rolled across the front and a live guy comes walking out. Can you imagine that? Because that is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. And so all these people are witnesses of that. And the book of Acts is what, what records that. And so they're not preaching all this other stuff. They're preaching the resurrection of Christ. And he lives So I can live. So I don't have to fear death anymore because I can live. Think about it. I'm buried in the likeness of his death and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. He said it last week. Was that last week? He said it last week when we had a God plunge. We say it every time. What an image. I'm buried in the likeness of his death and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life forever. It is the gospel. And the gospel is totally wrapped around the resurrection. And I'm going to say this again, if more men would preach that. Every single Sunday, the fire of revival would sweep across our country. It would. We don't need to add to that, and we don't need to take away from that. It is all about Jesus Christ is alive. Y'all, that's what it's about. We don't need to be fussing about this and that and the other thing when the dead guy's walking. We need to stop all that this church and that church and all of the crazy fussing about stuff, he ain't dead no more. That is the greatest truth that has ever existed. And because he lives, I get to live. And because he lives, y'all get to live. Think about that. Forgiveness, you can be forgiven. I don't care what you did you don't know what I did and I don't know nor care what you did and it doesn't matter what you did could there be consequences of course there could be consequences on this planet but the Lord doesn't say only certain things are forgivable you can be forgiven and Peter says in acts two, call everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved call on him right now if you have never done that for God's sake do it at least don't go to sleep tonight without considering it if you're watching online and you're by yourself and you're wrestling with this and that and you're wrestling but you don't know what I've done and I've been so bad and I treated my kids so bad or I treated my parents so bad or you just don't y'all forgiveness is forgiveness. And scripture says you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. Everyone, that promise in verse 21, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, man. Write it down, circle it, highlight it, whatever. Lock on to that promise, y'all. Repent And believe and call on his name. Y'all want to pray. And I want to lead us in that prayer. And if you've never said that. If you've never thought that. If you've never um, spoken it out loud. Lord today is the day where I call on your name. And Lord I've wrestled with it for 20 years. Or 5 years or whatever. But today is the day. Lord your word cut through like a knife today. And so, Lord, today is the day where I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And I turn towards you. And, Lord, I believe that your son died on the cross to take care of it and walked out of that grave alive. And, Lord, right now I'm calling on your name to save me. Save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, y'all, if you did that, it's called justification you are walking in the newness of life. That's what just happened. And if that's the case, please let us know. Please let us know. Tackle me in the parking lot. Write it on a connection card on the seat back in front of you and turn it into the connections desk or take it back in the back. Our prayer team will be back there. Would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you out here. Talk to somebody about it. It's a big deal. Like it is a big deal. You just went from hell to life in the arms of the Father. So it is a big deal. I love y'all.